We are continuing this uh, this morning our study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, our, we're looking at the, Gal- the Galilean ministry of Jesus in the first nine chapters of Luke. And we're going to be doing that just for three more weeks after this. Uh, in the end of May, we'll be finishing this section of Luke, and then we're going to start in June looking at the book of First Peter, uh, which is a, really a book about how do you suffer as a Christian. Um, how do you go through trials as a Christian? It's going to be a really uh, profound book. Um, but the passage that we're looking at looking at today is in Luke chapter eight. And if you have a Bible, you can you can turn there. You can follow along in your bulletin. And this is really this passage is really a masterpiece. Uh, it, it's we could spend at least a couple hours looking at all the intricacies of what Jesus is saying and doing, and how that fits culturally, and even how. Luke records it. One of the kind of unique things about this is the only story in uh, the, the book of Luke where Luke weaves together two stories. There's a story about a man whose daughter is uh, dying and uh, a woman who's had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And uh, these they're kind of weaved together and they have all these similarities. So I'm going to try to unpack some of them. I, I don't have two hours to go through it all, so uh, we'll bring out some of those things. So let's um, let's pray and, and then we'll read God's word together. Our Lord, we thank you that uh, you bring us here. We ask uh, that you would be our teacher now. Uh, we thank you. Uh, that you are in our midst, that you are the great shepherd, uh, you are the, the great pastor of your people, the teacher of your people, the example to your people. So, um, Lord, we ask that you teach us uh, about how great your love is in this passage. Give us hearts to understand it. Um, for those of us who have known you uh, for many years, help us to believe more and to rejoice more in in uh, in who you are and what you've done, and for those of us uh, who are thinking about who you are, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us during this time, and we thank you for your word. Send us your spirit. We ask in Christ's name, Amen. So this is Luke uh, chapter eight, starting in verse forty. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me, for I perceive the power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. When he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, 
He allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord, and it's for our good. Thanks be to God. So several years ago, a few friends of mine and I, we went to our friend's parents' house in Ellensburg to spend a weekend in Ellensburg and go to the rodeo and do cowboy things and stuff like that. And we, uh, one of the things we did on, I think it was Saturday, there, I think it's the Yakima River, it's near Ellensburg, and there's a rock that you can jump off of into the river. So we went out there, and uh, it's about a 15-foot rock, and we were jumping into the river, and I said to two of the guys, I said, actually Trevor was the fourth, but I didn't recommend he do this, uh, we should all do a backflip off the rock. Um, and I'll do, I'll try one off this 15-foot rock if you're willing to try one. And so they said, ah, I don't know, okay, fine, we'll do it. I said, I'll go first, I'll go first. You can see what the worst thing that can happen will be, will happen to me. So I go up to the rock, and I, I, I'm not very athletic with my body, but I just kind of throw my body back, and I way over-rotate, and from 15 feet, I land on my side, but you know, it hurt a little bit, but I was okay. And so we get up, and the next guy goes, and he's much more athletic than I am, and he's never done a backflip in his life, and he's just like Mary Loretton, you know, 10.0, perfect, (laughs) backflip into the water. So the third guy gets up, and... He says, uh, "He says, I don't know if this is a good idea. I don't want to do this." We said, "You, are, we already did it. You have to. <laughs> you, you, you agreed. If we do it, you have to do it." So he gets up. He's clearly very nervous, and he begins to throw himself back. And about one, one point, you know, 0.15 seconds later, he decides, "I don't want to do this." But he's already horizontal <laughs> above the river. And when I had gone and, and done the backflip, every, I got up and I said, you know, that's the worst thing. You know, look, I fell on my side. That's the worst thing that could happen. Look, and I'm fine. You couldn't be any worse than that. And so as soon as he gets, he gets back horizontal and then he turns towards the water to try to correct. We're about 15 feet straight down. And we say, oh, <laughs> that was the worst thing. <laughs> and so he quickly swims out and his whole side is just these red dots of blood blisters and, um, and clearly uh, fear, fear in the middle of a backflip is not a good idea. Now, uh, we all know that that's what fear does, right? Fear uh, freezes you up. It incapacitates you. You're not able to act you know, if you're if you're going on a date and you're telling yourself the whole time she's not going to like me, she's not going to like me, she won't like you. <laughs> you won't be charming. You won't be witty. If you you know if you're doing a backflip and you say you're not going to make it, you won't make it. If you're uh, you know maybe one more example, if you're playing tennis, I play tennis, and if you are serving the ball and you picture the ball going into the net, the ball will go into the net. And if you picture it going in, it's a lot more likely it's going to go in. That's true, you know. And that's the way the world works. And, you know, I, I work that way with in, in life. You know, I think about setting goals for the church. Where are we going? We want to see where we're going. And, um, and that's true. But in our culture, um, we have taken that and we've written innumerable books that this, the solution to all your problems 
is to visualize yourself succeeding. See yourself doing it. If you can visualize, I mean, look, the tennis ball works. Well, apply that to all of life. And, and to some extent, that's, that's true. But one of the things that it doesn't take into consideration is that there are innumerable things in our life that we are, are utterly incompetent to handle. And there are tons of things that we're going to face that are completely out of our control. And so I, all the visualizing in the world will not, uh, will not change those things. That's, that's the hard fact. And in fact, we, we also grow up in a culture that tells us from elementary school, you can be whoever you want to be. You know, shoot for the moon, and if you miss, you'll get the stars. You know, set your dreams however, as far as you want. You can be whoever you want to be. And so we think, if, if, I, if I have my dreams high enough, I can, anything can happen. I can visualize things. But there are a ton of things that we can't control. And what we have in this text is a man and a woman who find themselves faced with life circumstances that they have absolutely no control over. Here's a man with a dying daughter. His only daughter is 12 years old is dying. And a woman who has done everything to get rid of a discharge of blood that she's had for 12 years. And nothing has worked. They are beyond their competence. There's nothing they can do. But what we see in both of them is something interesting. They neither freeze up with fear and do nothing. Nor do they say, I look at themselves in the mirror, I can do it. I, if I visualize hard enough, I'm my discharge of blood is going to get better. They don't do that either. They don't say, I'm strong, I'm confident, I can do it. They don't do that. They don't freeze up or they don't say, I'm strong. They do something, a third option. Look at verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet... He implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. He falls at Jesus' feet helpless. That's not freezing up and doing nothing, and that's not saying I'm confident. Uh, look, at, look also at verse 47. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of, of all the people why she had touched him. Falling down helpless. Both, for both of these people, their response to life situations far beyond their control is to fall down empty-handed before Jesus and admit that he alone is the competent one. Jesus is the competent one. And um, what I want to explore kind of in this sermon in this, as we go through this text is that I think actually this man and this woman uh, are dealing with fairly typical fears. Uh, they're extreme, but in some ways, fears that men and women in general face. Now, I'm going to make some generalizations about men and women, and some of you might be offended by that. You know, I'm not a woman. How do I know it? Uh, but the things I'm going to say about the men are true about the women, and a lot of things I'm going to say about the women are true about men. So they're generalizations. But, um, but I'm going to kind of work under those two categories, you know, under these two headings. You know, we're going to look at this text. The number one, uh, men fear not knowing what to do. Men fear not knowing what to do. And women fear not being cherished. And the proper response to both of these fears is to fall down before Jesus. So we're going to look at those. So first, men fear men fear not knowing what to do. The text tells us in verse 41 that Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. So what that means is he's he's like the main elder in the synagogue, which is kind of the center of the town, center of the community. And so he's in charge of arranging all the worship 
And so he's, um, he's a man of high standing. He's a leader in the city. He's, he's a highly competent man. So in many ways, for a man, Jairus kind of represents the goal of being a man. He's respected by his family, by his community. Uh, he's moved up in his vocation. He's done, done his job well. He knows the Bible probably inside and out. So people come to him for uh, wisdom. And, uh, and so he's a... Um, he does things well. And the reason that doing things, uh, doing things well is important for man is because it's in doing things well that we feel respectable. Right? And so uh, it's for this reason that many men find kind of a family life, you know, uh, having a a wife um, or children to be a frightening foreign endeavor because uh, it's not, it's not a place, it's a place where they rarely feel competent. They rarely feel their skills, their know-how, their ability uh, uh, to handle, handle situations, make, make decisions, um, is not thriving in the family in the context of the family. There's kind of an interesting thing uh, that came out last year that illustrates this pretty powerfully called The Hurt Locker, which won the Academy Award um, for 2009 for Best Picture. And Hurt Locker, if you haven't seen it, is about uh, an EOD unit in, the, uh, in Iraq who, that defused bombs. And so there's, there's three, uh, these three soldiers who go into these high-stress situations, these huge bombs that would just blow up a city block, and they got to go in and cut the wires, and they got insurgents shooting at them. And it's highly stressful. The whole movie's like that. They're just bomb after bomb, disarming. And there's this one guy who is just the man at this. I mean, he stays in until it's down to point one second, and he gets the wire, you know, and he's got people shooting. And he's disarmed over 800 bombs. He's, I mean, he's kind of crazy that he just keeps going. Even if he doesn't need to disarm it, he's going to do it. And so he gets, he's very respected. He, you know, his uh, commanding officers are like, wow, you, you know, I think he gets decorated and he's doing really well. And the end of the movie, he, he finishes his tour, hugely successful tour. Uh, and he comes home. And he's with his wife, and he's got like a six-month-old daughter, and he's sitting there just holding his daughter like, what do I do with this? What do I do with my daughter? And how do I talk to my wife? She's trying to talk to me, doesn't know it. And there's a scene where he's in the supermarket, and he looks in the cereal aisle, and there's just hundreds of different kinds of cereal. And he says, uh, you know, he can make split-second decisions with bullets flying over his head and the timer is going down. He can make a decision, uh, the right thing to do. But how do I pick out the cereal? I don't know what to do. So what do you think he does? He goes back to Iraq. Within a few months, he goes back. Because he would rather be in the most probably miserable, dangerous place in the whole world, but know what he's doing, than be in the comfort of a home and a family and have no idea what's going on. I mean, that's a that's a powerful illustration. That, that that happens all the time. Men fear not knowing what to do, and this is a, this is true in families because a family will always challenge a man's competence. A family will challenge his uh, his ability to make decisions, his ability uh, to love, um, to be in relationships, to lead, um, and also in a family, a, a family, a man will face many things that he can't control. And that's what we have uh, exactly with Jairus in this text. Um, You look again at verse 41. 
And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. And then it's it's like it's as if Luke kind of slows the narrative down and wants us to think real hard about verse forty-two. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. Clearly, Jairus loves his daughter. his only daughter. And the fact that she's 12 years old, in, in their culture, what that means is she's coming to the age where she's going to be betrothed to be married. She's about to enter into the prime of her life. And so Jairus should be looking at his daughter and having visions of her wedding day, um, dressed beautifully, radiant, full of joy, uh, coming <laughs> into womanhood. And he should just be brimming over with pride about her. And, um, and soon she would, she'd be coming to the age where she'd have children and give him grandchildren as his only daughter. And that he'd be looking forward, forward to grandchildren. You know, uh, Psalm 128, which is a, a kind of blessing about families um, for a Jewish family, says this. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. That's the blessing. May you see your children's children. And here's Jairus. And instead of having visions of his daughter's wedding day and uh, and uh, visions of seeing his children's children, she's dying. And there's nothing that he can do about it. None of his synagogue ruler competence can handle this. And so what does he do? Um, in the midst of fear of not knowing what to do, what does he do? Does he busy himself with uh, synagogue duties? Ah, oh, I don't know what to do. Let's organize another worship service, or let's do something. Let's uh, let's study a Bible text. Let's find something to do. Uh, get my mind out of that fear, that that situation. No, he doesn't. He falls down at Jesus' feet, imploring him to come with him. What is he saying? He's saying, Jesus, I have no idea what to do. I'm lost. But I'm not going to walk away and ignore the pain and fear of this situation by doing something I know how to do. I'm not going to walk away from the fear and pain to do something I know how to do. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to believe that you are with me and I'm going to believe that you are going to reveal yourself in the midst of this. This is what it means to be a man. Now, some of you might think, you know, Christians literally falling down before Jesus even now and praying and, you know, being on the ground and stuff like that. Isn't that kind of a little emotional... uh, isn't that kind of what the devout, super spiritual kind of Christians do? Is they fall down before Jesus? Well, the question you have to ask is, how many of us are going to find ourselves in situations where we are incompetent? We are out of control. We have, we have no say in what's going to happen. Our know-how won't work. How many of us? We're not God. So by definition, we're going to find ourselves in a lot of situations like that. And that means that the, that the habit of falling down before Jesus... Is, is really going to be the practice of every Christian. And, um, and I believe that actually this is the kind of man that God wants to raise up for us in our church. Men who are willing to be in situations where they don't know what to do, whether it's in their families, whether it's at work, whether it's in the community, whether it's in this congregation. I'm willing to be in situations where I feel incompetent. And I'm willing to fall down before Jesus. I'm not only going to isolate myself to places where I feel competent. And so that might, you know, what does that look like? It might mean uh, I got to work on my marriage. I got to talk about my marriage with someone, or I got to I admit that I don't know what I'm doing parenting, 
Or maybe, I mean, step into relationships in this community with people here that you normally wouldn't have relationships with. Maybe go get coffee or go get lunch with someone that uh, you normally wouldn't hang out with. And put yourself there and say, Jesus, I'm going to show up. And um, I'll tell you that you know, that's exactly, I, I printed for you in, uh, in the front of your bulletin, you can per- turn to page three, a quote by Larry Crabb um, from his book, The Silence of Adam. I'm going to read that to you, which is, uh, I think it really speaks to this. <clears throat> a man can be understood by knowing the questions that burn hotly within him. For many men, one question stands out among others as the one that matters most. <laughs> What should I do? When men feel their deepest agony, that is the question they ask. When a man finds himself in a place where that question cannot be answered, he moves to a place where it can. When he looks around and realizes he has wandered into a confusing situation where courage and creativity are required, he finds a way to return to the sphere of management, to some activity or responsibility where his skill and know-how are useful where his adequacy and fear will not be exposed, where the courage to live in an unpredictable world is not required. In short, he retreats to where he can find an answer to his burning question. When a man flees the terror of mystery for the comforts of management, he compromises himself. A man ruled by the demand that he always know what to do cannot experience the deep joys of manhood. He has violated his calling and betrayed his nature. God calls a man to speak into darkness, to remember who God is and what he has revealed about life, and with that memory utmost in his mind, to move into his relationships and responsibilities with the imaginative strength of Christ. Uh, Very powerful. That uh, When a man uh, flees the terror of mystery, he is compromising himself. Now, um, I'll just tell you personally right now, my, I'm facing, I have five little children that are, their eyes are all looking at me, be my dad, love me, uh, cherish me, lead me. Um, and, you know, it's terrifying that uh, the rest of their life, the rest of the decades of their life are going to be hugely shaped by my interactive action with them right now. And there's five of them. All wanting that, that level of competence from me. And, you know, I didn't have a class, I don't think they had a class on that in seminary on how to raise my kids. Uh, and um, so, you know what that really leaves me with is I have three options. Uh, one, um, I can go down to my study and open a book of theology and study the Bible and be like, this, I know how to do this. I've learned how to do this. I can. Just, I gotta work, you know, this is important, I really have to do this. Flee from the mystery. Or I can go in there and I can get angry. And I can intimidate my children and say, I'm gonna make this place a place that I can control, a place uh, that I'm confident in. I'm gonna use, uh, I'm gonna flex my muscles until this is a place that I can control. The third option is to fall down before Jesus and say, I can't handle it. I'm not in control. But I'm going to be here. I'm going to be present, and I'm going to believe that you're going to reveal yourself in the middle of this. And um, now, some of you say, okay, I understand that. Go to Jesus when you can't solve the problems. Uh, but doesn't Jesus say here to Jairus, look, look down there at verse 50, do not fear, only believe, 
and she will be well. Um, are you saying that my kid is sick if I'm facing some tragedy that I fall down before Jesus and Jesus is going to make everything better? Is that what you're saying? Uh, is that, isn't that what the text says? Isn't, is that what you're saying? That I, that's why I should fall down before Jesus so he can fix all the problems and make everything better? Well, no. The first answer to that is no. The second answer is yes. <laughs> uh, the first answer is no because what is this text? What is this passage we're looking at? The purpose of this passage is not to say this is what Jesus gives people. The purpose of this passage is who is Jesus? And uh, what Jesus promises us when we go and fall down before him is not what can Jesus give me? Uh, what, what trials can Jesus take away? What um, comfort can Jesus give me? What falling down before Jesus gives me is him. And we look at Jesus and we say, who is competent? Who's the man who, can, who stands in the midst of, of mystery and unpredictability? Well, Jesus was betrayed by all his friends. He um, was condemned as a blasphemer and, and hung like a, a thief by himself. And he went into the, into the garden and prayed before the Father, sweating blood. Your will be done. And he walked into complete chaos. And what, uh, he walked into complete chaos and he was silent. He walked through it. He was there. He was present. He is the confident one. Jesus is the confident one. And Jesus is the only one who's never compromised his manhood. Okay? Us men, we've, we've compromised our manhood innumerable times. Jesus never has. And so falling down before him, we're going before the true man. The true courageous man. But secondly, this is also, he's, he's going to heal this, uh, this, his daughter. And what that is is a foretaste of what God is going to do in the future. God promises that, that Jesus is going to make everything right. And so we do have to live in the midst of that consolation that, yeah, um, the part of the reason I can live in the chaos of this world right now is because God will make it right in the future. And so I trust that Jesus is going to do that. So that's a brief answer to that question. So first, men fear not knowing what to do. And how we respond to that fear is by falling at Jesus' feet. But second, women fear not being cherished. Now, I wrote that point, and then I called Shannon. Is this true? Uh, <laughs> is that true? Uh, can you give me some feedback on this? And so she, you know, so she verified to me, yes, I, from her experience and from women that she's known, that that's true. And one of the things, ways that she's seen that is that um, a big part of the reason that um, that a woman would enter into uh, sexual relationships before marriage and uh, or maybe even into damaging relationships is not usually because their hormones are going crazy and they you know want to get it on or something like that the uh, sorry that's crude <laughs> the um, the uh, not because their hormones are raging but because they want someone to say to them I love you uh, I cherish you. That's what they're looking for. It's, it's not. It's not so much the physical, but but really someone to say, "I choose you. I want. I all, of everyone else, I chose you. I want to be with you." And so, you know, the Bible kind of says that thing too. Uh, in Paul's teaching on marriage, he says, uh, "Husbands love your wives, and wives respect your husbands." Why does he say that? Well, husbands need respect. That's what we need. That's the thing that we're hungry for: is someone to respect us and. The gals are 
hungry for someone to love us, someone to cherish us. That's why Paul lays out um, uh, those commands for us. So, and that's, uh, so in, in the same sense that living out of the fear of not knowing what to do uh, will compromise a man's manhood. Living out of the fear of not being cherished will compromise a woman's uh, womanhood. But the story of the woman in this passage gives us a kind of compelling alternative uh, to living in that fear. Um, so what we have here is Jairus. Jairus has gone to Jesus and he said, please will you come heal my daughter? And Jesus goes on his way and there's all these crowds crowding around him. But Jesus is willing to be interrupted, right? It says in, uh, uh, look at verse 43. And there was a woman who had a, had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, in a Jewish community like this, a woman you know, would normally, in her kind of normal menstrual cycle, would have a week out of a month where she was going to have to be isolated from the community because she was ceremonially unclean from her, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I should have planned that word. Okay. And, um, and so, but this woman, and, and so no one can, they, they, uh, this woman uh, has had a perpetual discharge of blood for 12 years. That means no one has come near her, touched her. She has had to live in the non human space. And no one has touched her. No one's come near her. Do you think she feels cherished? And it says that she was so desperate that, um, that she had spent uh, all her living on physicians and she could not be uh, healed by anyone. Now, some of the remedies for her condition in, in that day would have been uh, take wine, uh, mix in some rubber and alum and uh, garden crocuses and drink it. She's, she maybe drank rubber to try to <laughs> take care of this condition. She definitely wants to get out of it. She's desperately been isolated from people. And so she's so desperate that she follows the crowds after Jesus. She manages to barely touch his garment and she's healed. And then something very strange happens. Jesus has this crowd pressing all around him. He turns around and he says, who is the one who touched me? Who is it? Now, I talk about C.S. Lewis quite a lot. I don't disagree with C.S. Lewis very often. I I like him a lot. But this happens to be one point where I disagree with him because C.S. Lewis would say that this passage shows Jesus' humanity. Look, Jesus didn't know everything. He didn't know who touched him. He turned around and said, who touched me? Power was coming out of me. I don't know where it it went. I don't know what happened. But I I disagree with him. I don't think that's what happened. Um, Look at verse 47. The woman... So Jesus turns around, who is the one who touched me? And it says, the woman saw that she was not hidden. She, uh, it was clear to her that Jesus knew exactly who touched her. So I think maybe this scene looks like some, a little something more like this. Jesus turns around, there's this crowd, this whole community is out there. And maybe he's looking her dead in the eye and said, who is the one who touched me? And he's, draw, he's isolated, she's singling her out, and he wants to draw her out of the crowd. And says that she comes uh, trembling forward. And it's almost like it's this miniature judgment day. The whole, her whole world is watching. All these people are watching, and she is coming forward, and she's standing before Jesus, awaiting a verdict. What is Jesus going to say to her? Because uh, why is she trembling? Uh, she's unclean, and everyone knows she's unclean. They, don't, they would never even touch her. 
And she, without permission, goes up to the teacher, the holy man, the you know, God's Messiah, and without permission just goes up and touches him to, de- to defile him. And so she's trembling. What I've been told for the last 12 years not to do anything like that. And so she stands up and hears her judgment, possibly the most humiliating moment of her life or the most redeeming moment of her life. And what does Jesus say to her? Daughter. My sweet daughter. It's amazing. Jesus, this same word is the word that's used for Jairus' daughter. Jairus, who's uh, his 12-year-old daughter, who he loves, who he's pleading for, who he's agonizing over. Jesus says, you see how Jairus loves his daughter and is agonizing over her? I'm agonizing over you. You're my daughter, and your faith has made you well. He embraces her. And, um, and what that shows um, is that Jesus has singled her out from the crowd, and he loves her as an individual. Her, I love you, I cherish you, you are my daughter. Now, this, uh, this last week, Shannon found an old picture of me and Will, my son Will, from when he was one. And uh, this picture from one we're in St. Louis, and he's kind of leaning on my shoulder, and I'm holding him, and he's got this big smile on his face. And she found it, and she's like, well, look, I found this picture of you and Daddy. And he took the picture, and he carried it with him the whole day. And it has a little thing, and you put it on his pocket. He'd be be eating his, you know, oatmeal, and he'd set it up right here, and he was just looking at it, and he's like, "Oh, my daddy!" And he'd be playing his toys, and the picture was in the frame, set up wherever he went. He was setting it up. What? What was so? I mean, there's tons of pictures of me and Will. Well, he's a part of a big family. It's important to Will that uh, Dad doesn't just love the kids. You know, that he's another one of the kids. But this is a picture of just me and him. And that dad loves me as an individual. Dad loves Will. And that's, that he needs to be cherished as an individual. And that's what that picture says to him, is my dad loves me. Almost like I'm, a, I'm an only child. And, uh, you know, the fact is that if you trust Christ, if you belong to him, Jesus not only loves us as a church, but he knows every one of us individually and loves us as an individual. He knows our names. He knows our stories. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus, before he made the world, he knew our whole life story. He knew every shameful thing we'd ever do. He knew exactly what we'd be like. He he knows our personality. Um, And he chose us. He said, yeah, Jesus chose us. Why are you guys just telling me like that? They get it, okay? Uh, and, uh, but Jesus, from before he made the world, looked and, and he chose us. And he says, I want you. And when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus didn't die on the cross some kind of vague death for like sin in some general sense. He died for his people's sins on the cross. And then, you know, we're living our life. What did he do? He put people in our life. He was navigating. He was pursuing us like a great lover going uh, going after the one that he cherishes he was he was pursuing our lives he was what do, what do we like how do we think I'm going to put people in your life what do you need and I'm going to pursue you and I'm going to draw you to myself that's who Jesus is that's what Jesus does from this, for this woman is he drops out and he says I love you you and, and I know who you are Jesus is the great pursuer um, 
You know, what lengths has any man gone to pursue a woman compared to the lengths that Jesus has gone to pursue each one of us individually? And what this woman shows us is that in the midst of the fear of not being cherished, we need to learn to fall down before Jesus. I mean, as a woman, to, uh, to not compromise womanhood, just like a man not compromising his manhood, needs to fall down before Jesus instead of fear not knowing what to do. A woman, fall down before Jesus and be cherished by him. That's our Lord. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for the lengths that you've gone for us. We thank you that you are uh, the competent one. Uh, you are uh, the one who pursues us. You are the one who uh, is faithful in the midst of chaos and doesn't flee mystery but trust God. Lord, make us more like you. Draw us near to you and teach us that we might learn to fall down before you and believe and have that kind of faith. Now, Lord, um, we respond to you uh, with an offering that all that we have belongs to you, and all that we have has come as a gift from your hands. So we ask that you receive it and use it for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.